Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And today is part one of two episodes on the Netflix series Bridgerton and the romance genre in television and literature. And we're featuring special guests, Kelly Williams and Amanda Bales. So let's get to it. And this talk was so, so fun. And for listeners, uh, you might want to be aware that we talk about some Bridgerton season two spoilers, and we actually don't give too much of a plot synopsis, so you might want to be familiar with it (laughs) before you go ahead and listen. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We're very excited to be here with Amanda and Kelly from the blog Cravats, Crinoline, and Craft. And we've had Amanda on here before, but I'm going to let you guys talk a little bit about why you're here and why you started uh, your blog project. Okay, so like I am getting the motion that I will be going first. Uh, my name is Amanda Bales. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Illinois, uh, Urbana-Champaign, and current president of my union. And yeah, and and I'm a fiction writer. Um, I have one book out. It's called Picola Stories. You can look at a past, a couple past actually podcast uh, episodes here to hear me blather about that for a while. But yeah, so I'm a fiction writer and Dr. Kelly Williams and I uh, met because she was finishing up her PhD at the University of Illinois. And the way it works when you're non-tenure track faculty at the University of Illinois is that you just have like a cubicle in an attic. And like, and and like other non-tenure track faculty and grad students are all around you. And so Kelly and I were both in the attic of the English building at the University of Illinois, which is haunted and has bats and is wonderful. Yeah, the ceiling was falling in on us and everything. It was very like dark academia, but literally dark. Yeah, (laughs) The lights weren't always on. No windows. Like it's, it's its own little gothic tale. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, just by sort of being in physical proximity to each other, and I think overhearing each other talk to our students and maybe to other people, um, I'm very loud, so it's very easy to hear me talk about things. I'm also, you know, upset about things a lot, so I'm sure I was ranting a lot. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) Kelly and I began talking, and for a while, it was was basically feminism and death all the time, just like like those two things a lot. Nice. And then eventually, and Kelly probably has a better memory of this, but somehow we started talking about like romance novels and sort of like our different perspectives on them because I'm coming at them from this like craft perspective of a fiction writer. I think it might be because we talked about Outlander, I th- like the TV show. Oh, I think that yeah. might have been the yeah. very first like thing that we were like, hey, let's let's sort of, like, you know, just like break this down. And then Kelly, of course, is coming at it from this, like, amazing historical, researched, uh, actual knowledge perspective. And so we just found um, our different takes on, like, even, like, what love is and what it can do and then, like, what it does in fiction uh, to be a pretty interesting conversation. So we started this blog together so we could talk about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm going to hand it off to Kelly. My name is Kelly Williams. I have a PhD in medieval literature. So talking about the Regency era is a little bit outside of my realm of expertise, but at least I have kind of the tools necessary to go and look up things when I don't know the answer. So I'm not like in the details all of the time, but I kind of know where to go, if that makes sense. We Actually, the blog started as we were hanging out at the coffee shop, like having a book club. And I think our rationale was we want to do something that is like 
feminist focused, like focused on feminism, but like we didn't want to do anything that was too close to work. (laughs) If that makes any sense. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) Yeah, because we were talking, we're like, hey, I think we should read romance because, you know, there's a historical perspective, there's a craft perspective, but we were also talking about feminism so much and media representation that we're like, hey, why don't we engage with the genre that is has the most published female authors, that is the most representative of, you know, like women's contribution to the literary field, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it has its flaws, but we were coming at it from a perspective of let's not trash this or consider it to be like garbage literature. Let's actually engage with it. But it kind of in a fun, low stakes way because um, we didn't want it to be work. So... I think that's where we started. And then I moved because I graduated. And then I was like, hey, Amanda, I miss your face. <laughs> Can we start a blog together? <laughs> and that's where we are today. Yeah, that's super cool. And that's why you guys are on here to talk about Bridgerton season two, Woo-hoo! because you guys are the resident romance experts. <laughs> <laughs> so would you like to start with Lady Danbury? Because we all we all love her. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you, yeah, like that's a good place to start just to get some momentum going. Sometimes we we will, you know, give a brief synopsis of what we're talking about. So let's actually start with that, and then we'll segue into Lady Danbury. So who would like to give a synopsis of season two? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> or I uh, I could do it very badly. I'm really bad at synopses. But uh, I, I tend to get really <laughs> rambly and be like, let me tell you about this li- little tiny detail that doesn't matter. Uh- <laughs> Can we zoom back out and just yeah. just remind listeners that Bridgerton is a Netflix series that is in its second season. And it is a Regency set romance piece that is very, like, I think, catering to the female gaze in ways that a lot of similar shows have not. And it's very funny and plucky. And uh, Shonda Rhimes is one of the main uh, showrunners, producers, and it's based on a series of books by Julia Quinn. See, that was great. Thank you. That was perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like you do this professionally. Well done. (laughs) She's so much better at it than I am. Um, So season one came out, I think, late 2020. Mm -hmm. And then um, season two premiered in March, and it focuses on the many Bridgerton siblings. I don't even know how many there are. But this season focuses on the oldest son named Antony and his search for a wife, which turns into a search for love. And I'm just going to leave it there. (laughs) I think that was a perfect (laughs) synopsis. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think there's eight siblings because they're alphabetical, right? It's Antony. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do it. Antony... Benedict, Colin, Daphne, Eloise, uh, and then those little kids I don't even really care about. So, <laughs> <laughs> Who's the F? I don't know. Who's the F? Francesca? Oh, it might no. be. I don't know. <laughs> Is it Francesca? They're children. We don't care. <laughs> yeah, the three youngest ones yeah. like, are not real They're... characters yet. <laughs> they will no, be like no, seasons no. down the road. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the big characters and one of kind of the standout characters of the show is Lady Danbury. So tell us about how much you love her and why we all love her. (laughs) (laughs) 
so they're like I, I will talk about this because my my I would I would genuinely follow this woman into hell like I would uh, <laughs> like like she is so powerful and self-contained and um, as a character and I will say like the biggest part of my love for her actually comes from season one and I'm not I know that this is going to be slightly maybe like telling about me and maybe a little bit sad but I'm gonna tell it anyway so in season one, uh, the main sort of beau character, like the main male uh, love interest, this Duke, uh, we find out that when he was a child, he had this speech impediment. And therefore his father, like basically, you know, refused to even admit he was his son, just like left him at the estate, like just, you know, completely abandoned him. And then Lady Danbury stepped in and was like, I'm going to help you i'm going to like you know help you with the speech impediment i'm going to help you sort of like grow and you know i'm going i'm going to help you out and there is this speech that she gives him when he was a small child about like basically like you know i'm here for you and i'm going to be there for you and you are going to be okay and everything's going to be all right and i swear to you there have been times during this pandemic where i have just like gone back to that speech and like watched it to like feel <laughs> like that oh. amount of like faith and energy and confidence like in the world and like support in the world like it's just it's so powerful and it's so amazing and of course this is an actress who's coming from the british stage and i think that that's very clear because she's so like just has such a great presence and and really like holds your attention uh when she has scenes in which she is meant to do so so yeah i mean like that's sort of like me ramblingly talking a little bit about lady danbury but those are some of the things that just sort of overall qualities that i really enjoy about her as a character i think there's a lot about like you know how she's sort of meddling and trying to control people that would normally be something that kind of puts me off and yet for her i'm like no like, she knows what she's talking about. Like, she's a great leader. Like, just follow her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tearing up a little bit. That's so inspiring. And she is amazing. She's so cool. Yeah. One of the things I really loved about her in season two, actually, I mean, we do see her be kind of in charge. And, like, the wise older woman <laughs> kind of watching the Joy younger... <laughs> You know, she's kind of watching the younger generation mess up and she's just like, oh, no, let's let's gently steer you onto the right path. And I think she got to have a little bit of fun this season with, is it Violet Bridgerton, the <laughs> matriarch of the Bridgerton family, as they sort of try to, you know, gently steer Edwina and Antony together. <laughs> there are some very cute scenes there. And I don't know, I just wanted to mention that. I thought it was really cute. But is is that character sort of a trope in the genre? If it is, does she transcend the trope in the in the show? Like, is from a craft perspective or from a genre perspective, what is that character about? And why is Lady Danbury so cool in Bridgerton? <laughs> <laughs> I don't it's it's hard to say. I don't think the crafty older woman is necessarily a trope in romance novels, at least none that I have really come across. It's doesn't seem like that at least the matriarch is really present a whole lot. Most of the focus is on the couple, but I think it does kind of come from you know, your Regency novels. I'm thinking, you know, like Pride and Prejudice, where the family is heavily involved, right? Even if it's in different ways. But what's really exciting about Danbury, I think, is that Danbury is kind of 
transcending social norms in a social in a certain way, but at the same time not because she's not completely casting off the rules of society. She's very much operating within them, but manipulating them and moving according to her own agenda, if that makes any sense. It's not mm-hmm. in a way that's, I don't think, malicious. <laughs> I don't think she's there sitting like, oh, I'm going to overthrow the government or, you know, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, that's not what's happening. But it is a claiming of power, like proximity to the queen is very important to her, her reputation, her good name, um, her standing in society is very important to her. At the same time, she doesn't really compromise her morals. She's very straight with all of the people who are important to her in her life, like you are doing wrong here, or you need to, you know, for example, in season two, you need to tell your sister the truth. But it's very complicated. It's not a complete casting off of social norm. I don't know. Did that make any sense? <laughs> Hopefully it did. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. made a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that can be even more powerful in a way than someone completely casting off social norms and stuff. And it makes sense because she is of the older generation. Mm. But I, I don't know. I kind of like the sort of quiet revolution of working within the system, I guess. Oh, that's a good term. Yeah, that is a good term. Something yeah. else that I think is is important um, that we that we, we haven't necessarily mentioned, but it is true, which is that in this world, like Queen Charlotte does, in fact, have like African heritage, and there's this entire thing in within the world where like like okay, this means that people of color are actually part of upper society, right? Like everything is here and everyone is here. And it's mainly because of this marriage with Queen Charlotte, et cetera. And there's this entire mm-hmm. part in season one where, you know, there is this like, look, it can be taken away. It is only here because of this marriage. <laughs> like this is the only thing. And like this status that we have and this equality or equity that we have sort of, you know, like it can all go away because it's all just based on love and it's all just based on this marriage. And so another thing about Lady Danbury's position here is like, it is crafty and it's working within the system. I think like in a large part with that in mind, right? Within, within mind of like, well, I can't, I can't just like burn down the system because like, it's all precarious anyway. Like it's still like, I have all this power, you know, I'm going to be reveling in this power and I'm going to be like making these decisions and I'm going to be doing these things. But like, I'm also acknowledging that it isn't, you know, it is something that can be removed. Uh, for various reasons. So I think that's also playing into part of this. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because that's kind of the the threat of Lady Whistledown's paper because Lady Whistledown pokes pokes fun of the queen all of the time. She is calling out everybody left and right, but she has the privilege of anonymity. And I'm not going to spoil, I guess, well, maybe I will, like who it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But like, it's somebody who's very much like not participating in the social environment the social matrix anyways right so they're in this position where they don't have to care about those things mm-hmm. so i don't know maybe an interesting follow-up to that I, I i don't know exactly how to phrase this question yet so bear with me as i kind of find the way <laughs> i'll go for it but in historical romance i mean it's very <laughs> <laughs> as you mentioned the genre is very female driven there are a lot of female authors and like there are the hero's points of view but it's very much focused on the heroine a lot of times so is there i guess a a pattern or does this happen often where this is why i was like 
<laughs> oh, just talk it out. <laughs> I have the seed of the question, but like, how is it? <laughs> so in historical romance, do you see it often where the heroine or the author is kind of doing the same thing, like working within the system, but being more modern and like more feminist, like, I don't know where I'm exactly I'm going with that, but can you <laughs> understand the seed of my question? <laughs> yeah, I think I get like, it, to what extent does romance um, operate within certain boundaries that may or may not be patriarchal, depending yes. on the time? Does that, is that a helpful rephrasing? And like maybe? balancing that, balancing yeah. the time period with modernity of like women having choice and putting their own needs first and things like mm. that. Yeah. yeah, it almost kind of goes back to the question of like, historical accuracy and to what extent is it present in the genre <laughs> because well, let's we talk about that oh yeah <laughs> this time we'll talk about all day <laughs> <laughs> yeah in terms of like i guess it depends because for a lot of historical romance you see a, a deliberate kind of evolution you see a pattern where the farther back you go the more patriarchal it is and the more that women are still writing these terrible tropes or these very har what we would call problematic or harmful tropes. Um, but it is in a way that I think for them was very liberating. So I'm thinking of like, you know, the bodice rippers of the seventies, right? There's a lot of uh, dubious consent to say the least, especially in the historical times. But it seems like the authors of that period were doing that as a way to deal with traumas or difficulties or patriarchy in the present time. So the thing that I keep thinking about, maybe Amanda can jump in on this too, is like the rape fantasy, right? You have a bunch of bodice rippers where consent is not given, right? Where the hero just takes what he wants. And it's done in a way for women and female writers to just come to terms with the fact that rape was ever present, that the threat of, you know, toxic masculinity was ever present, but there is a tension between being attracted to men and being... Um, I guess, threatened by men. Nowadays, with the Me Too movement and also just more open discussions about feminism, I don't see a lack of consent being as popular <laughs> or as widespread. So definitely things are changing, um, especially in historical rom romance. We've read a lot of no um, a lot of romance novels together where it's like this great feminist message. And of course, it's not historically accurate, but who cares? Because <laughs> it's a story. <laughs> Yeah. But I think that the genre adapts to the time. It's much less a look at the historical past than it is a reflection or a way to come to terms with the anxieties of the present. Yeah, I think that that's great. So I and I remember I sent this quote to you, but I was listening to a different podcast. I don't remember. Uh, one of the history ones. We only listen to this podcast. There's only one podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to Going Medieval, and there was a historian on there um, who who basically said, like, look, all history is is a conversation between the now and the then. Like, it's it's never just the then, right? And that's uh -huh. even more true if you start bringing in, well, this is storytelling. This isn't meant to be, you know, history. This is meant to be a story we are telling ourselves about history. And so I think what Kelly is saying is exactly right, which is like, if you if you're sort of like looking at you know romance novels over time you can see oh like it's not you know representations of the regency in the 1970s are different than the 80s the 90s than now and that doesn't mean that the regency was different what that means is that who we are now is different and it's actually i mean like it's a you know as we all know and as you know because you're you know you're running a pop culture podcast which is like <laughs> 
like looking at popular culture even more than sort of like you know the 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 I don't know like hailed as genius whatever is definitely a really clear way to understand the kinds of like anxieties and wants and needs and fears that a culture was having at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you know when Kelly's pointing out like the seventies and eighties, like the bodice rippers and all of the rape fantasies. It's like, well, this was a time when women were really try like. Like, there's a lot of, and not that it isn't present today, but, like, there was a lot of anxiety about, like, okay, there's this, you know, for for heteronormative women, um, there is this both, like, fear and attraction, and, like, what are we going to do with that? Um, And this is one of the things that they did with that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up, too, because I've been thinking a lot about some of the criticisms of Bridgerton, specifically in the way that it fails to deal with the imperialism of the time period, and I think there might be something similar going on in the maybe the not dealing with the imperialism so at least in our present moment (laughs) in america we're focused a lot on you know like the black lives matter movement we are focused a lot on coming to terms with america's racist past but bridgerton does not come to terms with the imperialism of you know 18, 19, 20th century Britain, right? Um, I think it's kind of like a progressive escapism in that way. It's like we're trying to make the the racial tension go away by just including everybody, (laughs) by putting them in positions of power and not really thinking about how those people got there. So it's not even in just the romance, it's also in just the world building. Um, And every historical piece of fiction is going to do some amount of world building. None of us were there, so we don't know what it was like. So we're building the worlds how we imagine them to be. Um, And of course, when we do that, our own biases are going to kind of come through in some way. Well, and it's interesting that it's the racial tensions are absent, but the sexism is not. So we still don't let the Bridgerton women inherit a title or with the Featheringtons that it's this long lost cousin who takes the title, not one of the the deceased Lord's daughters. Mm -hmm. Like that's so frustrating. And, uh, you know, last season with Daphne having a lot of tension about marriage and what does marriage mean? And what is, what is, you know, all these things that she was never told she's given no sex education, for example, you know, so sexism is apparently okay, but, you know, we have nice racial equality. Yeah, I wonder if that's another kind of privilege in that, you know, the problems that we're interested in are the ones based in gender, but not the ones based in race, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, or even based in sexuality, like there's no really discussion of queer people, even though there's like one or two. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was looking up when the book started to come out. So the first... Oh, big mistake. What? (laughs) Big mistake. Oh. (laughs) Oh, no. Why? (laughs) No, keep going. I'll elaborate later. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, so the first two came out in 2000, which is now 22 years ago, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the series started 20 years later. I assume you guys have read the book, the first book at least, or perhaps not. I haven't read any of them. I haven't read them because I think Amanda, you said you started and it was just no. <laughs> I can't like we I have to be very careful here. Um oh, yeah. like as as a writer, we might have to cut some of this. Like what I would say is that uh like so I I I haven't fully read all of them. I tried to skim most of them and at least get a handle on what was happening and like what was going on and and like you know who these characters were etc like in in this sort of original text mostly just as an interest in terms of like what has changed and what hasn't 
in the adaptation. And yeah, it's uh, Kelly has a, a hard deadline of 2015 being the year that she will she will not go back from that in romance novels and expect to enjoy it. <laughs> and I don't know what happened in 2015, but apparently something happened in the romance writing world where people were like, hey, like consent and you know um i don't know like you know some other like good thing and like you know women having thoughts i don't know so so, so, oh no a thought (laughs) yeah yeah what i will say and this this is actually one thing i want to talk about is like it's so interesting to me that this was as popular as it is because each one just is a retelling of a very well-known like romance tale so like one this Mm -hmm. one is you know taming of the shrew which is based in like Commedia dell'arte stuff. Uh, there's one that's based on Cinderella. There's one that's based on like, they all are actually just these retellings, which I was like, I don't, that's what, like, why was that like a huge hit? And why weren't they just like really open about it? I don't know. Anyway, then maybe they were when they were like, you know, being sold. I haven't like looked at the advertisements at the time. I, I actually did not know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of one of the things too, like just to, I'll get, I'll let you get back. Um, but like, there are a bunch of, um, there's so much research. There's so much craft that goes into making these. They have these reputations of trashy books and yeah, some of them are, um, but a lot of them are women uh, and just people who just like really want to write something, but write something optimistic, right? They don't want to be like, oh, I'm going to do like historical stuff, but everyone's going to die in the end because of the way that historical fiction is structured but yeah sorry go ahead amanda (laughs) oh no so so yeah in terms of the original books i mean like those those are my main takeaways was that like like i I can't necessarily like like fully sink into this for many reasons but but it is very interesting that each one is just as different like again like you know sort of famous romance tale you know from different areas you know we've got like shakespeare we've got cinderella we've got these things but they're already these sort of like iconic stories but then you know set in the regency era so, which, you know, I think can, to, to bring us back to, to season two, like it, like it is the taming of the shrew. Like she's even called Kate, right? Like it's, it's so obvious. And one of the things that, that I think maybe doesn't get as much credit, and this might be a tangent, and then we come back to this idea of, of like, you know, fictional tropes and in romance novels, like the ideas of like, what are genre conventions and what, what that means and, mm-hmm. and how those have changed or not changed. But I will say, like, another thing that I want to I want to do is Edwina, like, one of the things about in Commedia dell'arte, right, is the ingenue is, like, it's very clear that the ingenue is supposed to sparkle. Like, all of the texts talk about her sparkling. Like, she has mm. to sparkle. Like, her whole job is to just sparkle, right? And, like, I'm an old theater kid, and so I remember, like, doing some of this and then being like, no, you're not sparkling enough, and me just being there like, I don't <laughs> think I have enough sparkle in me. Like, I can't... <laughs> Like, I'm obviously not an ingenue. Make me be someone else. I'm tired. <laughs> exactly. And and then, like, Columbina is this, like, more earthy, you know, like, she plays music, she does these things, and that's where it's, like, Kate's based off of. And so I will say that Edwina, and, like, the actress who plays Edwina, is just pitch perfect in this role. I mean... There is not a movement out of place. She sparkles the whole time. I have no idea how anyone has that much sparkle in them. Uh, but like everything about her is just sparkly, sparkly, sparkly. And and I do just want to say like, okay, if we're looking at this sort of like, okay, you know, we've got the Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare, but it's actually based, like that whole play was based off of these like tropes, as are a lot of his tropes, like based off of like Commedia dell'arte things, which were literally built as like, here is a stereotype character 
that we're all going to sort of inhabit. And then we kind of get like a base. It's like a sketch troupe. Like we get a basic outline for a story and then we travel around and we improv within this basic outline of the story, having inherited these like stereotypes that people think are fun and funny and that people want to see. And so if you can sort of trace that, it's like, okay, it's actually coming from literally a stereotype, like a flattened version that's meant to be very quickly recognized, that's meant to be very quickly enjoyed, that everyone sort of understands what the story is going to be. And then we bring that into Shakespeare, and then we bring it into like contemporary day. And you can just so clearly trace like what some of these conventions are, and like what some of these characters are because of that. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up, because I think that also plays into the, the historical accuracy or lack of it in, in the show. Because obviously Bridgerton is not 100% historically accurate, but it does use these visual and narrative cues to kind of help the modern viewer follow what's going on, so to speak, right? It's not necessarily like, this is a history lesson and we're going to teach you the ins and outs of society. It's, no, we're going to use these stock characters. We're going to use these situations that you've seen probably a thousand times before, just rearrange them in a little bit different ways to help the reader follow and help the viewer just kind of be immersed in a world in a way that they wouldn't be if we're coming at this from a purely historical standpoint. Yeah, which actually I think is like a pretty good transition. One of the things that you definitely want to talk about, I think Carrie on the on the document was like the use of like new arrangements of contemporary music, or not, I mean maybe not even contemporary at this point, uh, but sort of like <laughs> pop music into into yeah. things. Yeah, anachronistic music. Yeah, there you go. I was very excited when the cover of You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette came out. <laughs> just because it was like so unexpected, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just didn't put Alanis Morissette together with like Regency romance. And <laughs> I think last season they did a lot of more contemporary, like Taylor Swift and some people that I don't even remember, but like 2020s music and stuff. And then that popped up and I was like, first of all, very surprised second of all very happy (laughs) (laughs) well they also in i think it was the second episode this season if i'm remembering correctly they played a version of material girl when they have the coming out ball when edwina has declared the the diamond of the season sparkling diamond (laughs) the sparkling diamond um and so that's certainly not a newer song but it definitely is thematically appropriate that as as I'm sure Edwina has serious depths to her, but she does not show them. And Kate has raised her so more so than their mother, per se, but has raised her so much to be perfect on the surface. So that song is all about um, the assumption that someone is very surface and not uh, not very deep and just cares about material things and security. And that's really all that Kate has expected for her. And yet that's, you know, not... Not, you know, not the substance that she deserves, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I think that that's, you know, one of the tensions that I actually really enjoy about the second season quite a bit is that, you know, the fact that, like, in my in my mind, at least, like, we have, of course, the overall plot, which is the will they, won't they, you know, like, Antony and Kate slash Edwina. But really, like, the heart of the story is really between these two sisters. and And the tension between okay, like, you know, there is what is owed your family, there is what you, you know, owe yourself, there is, like, this great love that they have, there is Kate trying her best to sort of control everything, I think, for her sister, and sort of make this world for her sister, even though that isn't possible, and in fact, in doing so, what she has done is 
created a world that her sister actually isn't particularly suited for and doesn't really want to be in, which I think we get these little hints where it's like, oh, she's actually really bookish, you know, and, uh-huh. and, and like, doesn't want to like play the pal, like the pal model and like, you know, she actually kind of wants to just sit and read and talk about Greek stuff, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and so the idea of, of, you know, Kate having instead formed her in this way to like be this kind of person for their family and then for herself as well. And like how that, you know, for a, a really long time, like really puts a strain on their relationship and, and their friendship and their sisterhood. Like, I think that that's really compelling. And I really enjoyed that about, um, and it is interesting because, you know, these, these series and these books are all about the Bridgerton siblings and like the Bridgerton family. But then for this series in particular, like the most compelling sibling story was of course between Kate and Edwina. Yeah. But that's kind of what makes it an interesting, even in romance, because Anthony has some of the same problems, right? Um, he's there and he's constantly worrying about his family and what he's supposed to be doing, right? His whole hangup is that, like, I have this sense of duty that I cannot deviate from. Um, and of course, like, his is kind of the opposite problem that he pushes everybody away, right? Um, but it's still a very interesting, like, parallel to the Sharma sisters. Oh, for sure. In fact, I was, uh, I tried to rewatch some of it. I, I, you know, I had a lot to do yesterday, so I fell asleep very early. I tried to rewatch as many episodes as possible to keep it fresh <laughs> in my head. And then I think I got through episode three and was like, I just, I'm so sorry. I have to go to sleep now. <laughs> but I will say that, like, there's actually this very specific, which, you know, there, there are just so many parallels between Kate and Nancy. And that's one of the things that this, this story is doing very clearly and deliberately and very well. But I, there, there was even this moment that I didn't pick up on the first time, which is, you know, in the first season, Antony, like, makes Daphne leave early from the ball, like, from one of the balls, because then, oh, it'll just make people want her more. Like, this will this will be, like, this is, like, the best move. And that's literally the first thing that Kate does to her sister at the first ball that they attend as well. And says, and gives the exact same justification. Like, I'm very upset. Nope, we need to go. And this will just make them want her more. It's fine. I know what I'm doing. And so, I mean, like, there are even specific, like, parallel scenes between, like, what they do uh, with their siblings. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I really like this, all the sibling dynamics. But I think this is a good time to maybe talk about Antony and possibly the trope of the rake. You guys want to get into that? Let's talk about (laughs) this. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, actually, you know what? like in terms of like one of the things that brought us together, uh, Kelly and I, I think like our first book club, like romance book novel that we read, and I don't even remember which one it was. Oh, I do. Oh, I, <laughs> like okay. It was the Suffragette Scandal by Milan. Oh, like our favorite one ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this is true. It's called The Suffragette Scandal by Courtney Milan. Courtney Milan is our queen. If you have ever had any interest in reading historical romance at all, read hers. Like they are amazing. <laughs> So, and I, and I have to say, like, we started with that one, I think because you just looked up, like, feminist romance novels, and we were yeah, like... Yeah, we weren't sure where to start. We're like, yeah. let's start with something, <laughs> someone's list. So, like, here's a list somewhere, here we go. And we started with that one, and then, of course, that's, like, the peak. Like, we have never found another book that is, like, as feminist and, like, you know, as wonderful as that one. Yeah, my dog has just joined the chat. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> So within that uh, within that book is this trope of like, you know, there's this like callous, brooding rake. You know, he's he's you know he's a womanizer, but maybe not in like necessarily in a negative way. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but he uh, that's Axton, by the way. He's he's decided to make his presence known. <laughs> so yeah, like you know, it's like a brooding rake who 
is a bit of a womanizer and like you don't really like him. He's kind of a jerk. And then through the magic of love, um, you know, we a discover that actually the reason he's a jerk is because of some kind of trauma. And so like his jerkiness is justified in certain ways to us, or at least there is an attempt to justify it to us. And then also like the, the sort of power of love itself is going to be something that sort of, you know, like helps them process that trauma, helps make them be a different kind of man. And I remember like our very first conversation was mm-hmm. I was like exhausted by that trope. <laughs> I'm exhausted <laughs> by the trope of like women fixing men. <laughs> and so I went into, I was just like, I don't love is labor and it's work. And this whole idea that like someone's just going to like fall in love with someone and then become a better person. Like, Arr! like I was just like really yelling <laughs> about it um, in a coffee shop. <laughs> but Kelly had this very different perspective. And I think like, even from that point we were like, Oh, we also have these very different ideas of even like what love is and therefore how it operates in fiction so kelly if you want to sort of talk about you know your take on that yeah yeah so i was coming at it from a completely different perspective having not only training as a medievalist and knowing about like the origins of like the romance genre but also i've been reading up on some of the scholarship done i think her name's jessica avery who talks about romance novels Um, and one of the big points that she likes to bring up is that love is not necessarily this work as amanda puts it um at least not in the genre it's uh, an ennobling force right so if you mm. think about you know medieval romances in order for the lord to get his lady you know like the knight to get you know the the maiden or whatever he has to go questing right he has to make himself better for her they don't get united right away so like looking especially at historical romances i kind of see it the same way right so you have this hero who starts out as gruff and not particularly likable by our standards today but he has to go quote unquote questing in order to make himself better for her and sometimes you know that comes across as like the woman fixing him and those are the type of romances that i tend to not enjoy when she just kind of puts up with all of his like horribleness <laughs> but there are some romances where okay yeah he does have this trauma in this past he has this hang-up that he just can't get over and so what he does is goes through life to reform himself in some way to make him worthy of the heroine's love um, and i see that more from like a kind of a historical evolution of storytelling right there's this famous, and Jessica points this out, there's this, always this groveling scene, right, where he's just like, I was the worst to you, and I need your forgiveness, please take me, because I love you, or whatever. And that's just, that comes straight out of, you know, medieval romances, right, this idea that you have to make yourself worthy, you have to suffer for your love, almost, to make it worthy, if that makes sense. Yeah, and honestly, like, that conversation has, A, it's helped me reframe reading romance novels quite a bit, and and has also like like it's helped me reframe it in terms of like okay that well if it, you know even though we are with you know for the most part like you know uh, the woman in these tales uh, because most of these are heteronormative yeah then like like okay even if we're with their point of view like there is this sort of like quest going on and I think the idea of thinking about uh, the male lead is going on this quest this ennobling quest has been really really helpful for me um, especially because again if we're thinking about like okay if we're going to keep tracing these ideas of different tropes in storytelling and like tropes and romance like I actually think uh, like you know Kelly has definitely struck something here in terms of like oh a lot of this is coming from like medieval romances and this idea of like how love operates there like I think there's a much closer relation there than there is to a lot of like contemporary fiction to be completely honest you know, a lot of contemporary fiction is like, oh, if there's trauma, like, 
like love is very seldom in sort of like contemporary quote unquote literary fiction. Uh, love is seldom a transformative force. It is seldom something that is ennobling. Um, it is often something that that is, in fact, is destructive. It is often something that, you know, acts in these other ways. And, you know, I think because like that's the majority of what I have been steeped in <laughs> for so long, <laughs> then being able to sort of like get into romance novels from this other perspective was really, really helpful. And I think it's actually, you know, one of the things that Kelly talks about a lot. Because I think most people aren't like, I think most people don't point to the two of us and go like, I bet they're heavy romance novel readers. Like, that's really the vibe that like they're giving off here. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, one of the things that Kelly has pointed out many times is like, she she just has such a hunger for positive, right? Like narratives, um, which, you know, the name of this podcast, right? Like she just really (laughs) wants like narratives and storytelling that are positive about relationships between people and that don't end you know, in these negative ways. And I say this as someone whose writing is entirely discussed as being bleak every second of every day. <laughs> I think I called it that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, you 100% on did. the pot. <laughs> yeah. 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 You did. Uh, but you're not the only one. And I don't take it as an insult to be clear. Yeah. It is very accurate is what it is. Um, which again is the reason why I think people are like, really? You're your dramas novels? And I'm like, well, yeah, I write that all day. Like, of course, <laughs> of course I want to read. I mean, it's not Anyway, uh, but like, I have to live in like that, that kind of headspace, right? And so like, of course, I'm going to like, also look for the kinds of narratives that do these things. And I think the idea of love not being labor, love not being sort of a destructive force, love not being something that's sort of confining, but something that's actually liberating that maybe brings out people's best selves is this like wonderful idea. And like, Kelly's really the one that like, kind of like brought that to me. And then like being able to read romance novels through that, I think, I think is like, a really good way to approach them. Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting talking about that too, just from, I'm always going to bring the history back in, but I was also looking at historical romance because in, you know, historical fiction, everyone dies, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Everyone is suffering all of the time. And this isn't to say that, you know, bleak and depressing narratives don't have their place. They can be very cathartic in some instances, but as a medievalist who just keeps watching Viking movies where everyone is being sexually assaulted and run through with a sword, I was just kind of, there was this really strange disconnect between that pop culture and my training as a medievalist where I was like, oh, but there were libraries and there were monasteries where they made these beautiful books and they told these wonderful stories and yeah, bad stuff happened and it wasn't necessarily a utopia, but like, where are the moments of joy? Like, what got people through this? And I really wanted stories that did that and I found that in historical romance more so than historical fiction. Next week, we'll bring you part two of this super fun talk. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find the show on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. You can also email us at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. And you can also find our website at PositivelyPopCulture.com. And from there, you can find the link to the merch store. So get some merch. (laughs) And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pop.